This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's <laughs> called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Let's go sit down in the lounge for a second. Do you know where babies come from? Your tummy. Your tummy. Yeah? And your fanny. <laughs> Bo came off your fanny, I came out of your tummy. Do you know how you got in there? Uh, nope. Tadpoles. How? They live in your belly. How do tadpoles get into a mama's belly? Hmm, I don't know. You must dive into a tadpole pool and then and they swim under her. And they climb up your belly into your mouth and then they go all the way down to your tummy. What were your first ideas about sex? And where did those ideas come from? Did you scavenge and stitch together tidbits from friends and siblings and biology textbooks? Or were you among the lucky few who are able to talk to their parents? Maybe it was a bit of everything. You and I both know what's meant by the talk. That horrible, awkward, one-off and often too late conversation with mum and dad. But in reality, sexual understanding doesn't come in a moment. It's cumulative. I'm Melody Thomas, and in this podcast, we're going to explore sex and sexuality over a lifetime. From the birds and the bees, or the tadpoles, as the case may be, through the fraught teen years, right up to sex in retirement homes. This is a frank, no-shame exploration into a thing that most of us do, or at least think about or want to be doing, but that we still struggle to speak about openly. This is Bang. In this episode, the birds and the bees, we'll ask unsuspecting strangers to rehash agonising childhood memories of the talk, meet a group of parents grappling with that very thing right now, and hear from an expert about encouraging what she calls healthy sexuality in our kids. But first, I have a pretty awkward call to make. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Matt. <laughs> we've got there. Yeah, we got there. You might recognise the voice on the other end of this line. It's TVNZ reporter, breakfast weatherman Matt McLean. We grew up down the road from each other and went to broadcasting school later, but we didn't really hang out, haven't hung out much since, and we definitely didn't speak about what we're about to. Honestly, this was the very last thing <laughs> on my list of possibilities of things that we might be now talking about. Let's talk about what this mysterious thing that we're dancing around is. So, <laughs> so I'm making a podcast about sex and sexuality, and while I was kind of brainstorming, I thought, oh my goodness, I have this hazy memory of you and myself and my sister in our childhood treehouse, you know, exploring each other's bodies. I remember it as well, Um, perhaps just as hazy as you, but I definitely remember being in your treehouse and I definitely remember, you know, seeing... (laughs) Seeing Seeing female anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) It was never a sexual thing. I think it was just we knew that that we had different bits and I think it was just real curiousness. It was pulling down our pants and showing each other and then kind of pulling our pants back up and then probably never talking about it again. Mm. (laughs) And, I mean, we're talking about it kind of with trepidation as if we're the only ones that have ever done this before, but 
I would hazard a guess that almost everyone has done this at some point. It's funny when you say, you know, that we're quite kind of, you know, getting around this with trepidation. And, and I ended up, when I was calling you, feeling a lot more nervous than I thought I would be going into this. I thought, you know, this is going to be a, a riot. And then when the phone was ringing, it was, are we really going to do this? Well, don't be nervous. We were both there. No, I'm feeling good now. Fine. I'm feeling good yeah. now. And But it's interesting because I've brought this up with people and Everyone, every single person I have spoken with has shared something with me, and often they are kind of more explicitly sexual, maybe when they're a bit older, touching between friends, or but always it's buried in this very heavy sense of shame. And then, yeah, as soon as you bring it up, everyone's suddenly really happy to share. Yeah, well, I think it could probably <laughs> it probably does just remind us that that, yeah, everyone did have that experience and we weren't strange for being curious children. And mm. I think it, it probably is kind of a relief for people to be able to almost share that experience if everyone was in it together. But I feel like because nobody talks about it, there's this feeling like, oh, my gosh, am I, like, am I a sexual deviant? Like, <laughs> was it just us doing this out in the country in Pautahanui? Like, they didn't do this in the city, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it certainly would have taken someone to kind of roll the dice when we were that age. But, um, I, I mean, at that age, obviously, I think you're just kind of willing to go along with what your friends are doing and what your friends are saying. And if someone says, you know, pull out your penis, you pull out your penis. <laughs> um, I do remember maybe a year or two after our experiences, there was a young boy who I had a couple of kisses with mm. in his kind of back garden. And I know that we realised back then that it was something that we almost kind of had to keep secret, but I don't know where that comes from. Sex and sexuality just wasn't a concept I even kind of could grasp at that age. After this conversation, I'm going to have a conversation with a woman called Mary Hodson, who's a specialist in emotional and sexual intimacy, and she understands, I guess at an academic level, more of the things that we're talking about. So is there anything you'd like to ask or um, that you'd like me to ask about anything you're especially curious about around just what happened or the wider topic? I I guess uh, I'm maybe just clarifying that we were very normal and that this was a normal situation that we both experienced together. And I always have wondered, well, how did we get to that point then where we thought that this was something that we should be doing? Yeah, where that that idea comes from in in a child's mind. Mm. Cool. How we get to that point in the first place and then how, I guess, how we get to the point where it's something that we never, ever speak of. (laughs) The wonderful Matt McLean, who's apparently still fairly open to the effects of peer pressure, talking with me about what went down in my childhood treehouse all those years ago. Sex Therapy New Zealand's Mary Hodson is here now to answer any of the questions that come up in the episode. Thank you, Mary, for coming in. Could you start by telling me how you think that went? I thought that the two of you handled that really well. Oh, good. Most people would never address an issue like that. Mm. And... Um, All children explore. They're very curious. It doesn't mean anything more than that. It's just natural. When it is, you know, once or twice off, 
thing that happens, it's not repeated regularly, it's not with the same person. There's nothing untoward about it. It's natural curiosity. And the age of the children would determine whether it was more about burgeoning uh, sexuality, which is the term that you used in your email to me, or more about just innate curiosity. And it's really important that we don't make it seem judgmental Mm. or wrong, make it absolutely normal. In fact, um, Dr. Marty Klein, who's a very famous therapist in America, he's also a researcher and has written a number of books. And one of the things he says that adults have two responsibilities in the area of um, teaching children about sexuality. One is to master their own feelings their their emotions and their thoughts about their own sexuality and the second is to help children to find their way Mm. to healthy sexuality in their adolescence Mm. and adulthood healthy sexuality as opposed to sexual health and I think in the past sex education has been very much Mm. on sexual health rather than than on healthy sexuality. Say a, a parent of a young child who is thinking about sex and healthy sexuality and how to help guide their children, where does that journey start, do you think? At what age does that journey start? Early. Mm. Baby boys get little erections when they're tiny, when you're changing their nappy. Their genitals are external, so they very soon learn that if you touch it, it feels nice. Girls, were all tucked away inside, so we don't notice quite so early. But how those first few touches are handled is really important. The days of parents saying, don't do that, that's wrong, I think have probably gone. A parent is much more likely to say, that's something you do in private. But when you think about that, that's also creating um, an unhelpful attitude, isn't it? It's probably better to say something like, yes, that does feel nice, doesn't it? I, I noticed that too. And then distract them. If they're, if they're little enough to be doing that, then you might just give them a ball, something that takes both hands and their mind and distracts them. Because what you don't want is an over-focus on that pleasure that it's giving them, boys yes. or girls. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think over time I've become more open to these ideas, but I feel like some of our listeners will probably listen to us talking about acknowledging pleasure with the three or four-year-old and find that too confronting. Yeah. Well, if you go back a little bit, you know, when we talked about seeing the little boy touching himself when he's two and um, saying, you don't do that in public, that's typical. We have moved on from saying, you don't do that. But we, we're still reflecting that um, view that sexuality is something hidden, something not quite right, something rude, something dirty, something very private. Mm. Yeah. And of course, it is a private thing. And later on, when the children are older, we're going to teach them that. But we, we don't want to foster that. We want people to get better at talking about sexual, their sexuality, and then they will be better adapted and wholer, healthier. Mm, It is a lot of responsibility. And, of course, parents want to do best by their children, but to know what encouraging healthy sexuality looks like, I feel like we'd have to have been taught it ourselves. And for the most part, I don't know if we were. Okay, here we go. Off to talk to some strangers about sex. I'm making a podcast about 
sex and sexuality and I'm talking to people on the street about the ways that they first started to hear about sex. I was at a boarding school. A lot of it was through pornography, to be honest. I don't remember having conversations with my parents at all. Do you know, I don't think that um, either of my parents uh, ever gave me the talk about sex and stuff. I'm pretty sure my parents just taught me to read really early and then gave me that um, Where Do Babies Come From book. Actually, my parents gave me the same book. And I remember the description of orgasm being like a sneeze and thinking, I want to know more about that. Uh, I remember my dad coming into my room to do the talk. He was very embarrassed. And uh, we had the class in school. So I was like, I was completing his sentences. So he's like, oh, OK, you know this stuff. And he left. Did you feel prepared going into you know, sex and relationships? No, I, I think nobody does. <laughs> I don't remember too much specific, but I know that my mum was always happy to talk about things. I don't think Dad wanted to have anything to do with it. In our household, sex was not till after you got married, so there was no sex education, you just didn't do it. Yeah. I talked to my children about sex though, yeah. and it was always in the car. It wasn't eyeball to eyeball, because yeah. they don't feel threatened. Okay. And they're trapped. <laughs> <laughs> I've spotted RNZ Nights host Brian Crump. Let's see if he wants to talk about this. Yeah, Mum and Dad pretty early on told me that Dad's sperm gone into Mum and fertilised mum's egg and that made a baby. There was only one problem, I think the detail as to how dad's sperm got into mum, that detail was, was missing. So when did you start to fill in the blanks? Well I do remember Rodney Williams at Standard 4 camp. He was a bit of a bad boy Rodney and Rodney reckoned that it was something to do with what he called the man's spunk, getting via the man's penis into the woman's vagina. When Rodney mentioned the penis, I thought, no, penises are for weeing out of it. This is ridiculous, ridiculous. <laughs> so it did take a while, and I'm obviously mum and dad didn't check that closely to see that I got that bit of the information. My suspicion is they kind of hoped that I would work out that bit through osmosis and they wouldn't have to mention it. <laughs> oh, who didn't know a Rodney Williams at primary school? So I'm 32, and odds on if you're my generation or older, you either heard nothing from mum and dad about sex, or if you were lucky, you did have the talk, but it was one time, probably painfully awkward, and I imagine everyone was so focused on the conversation ending that information was passed over or misconstrued. I don't think we're talking about love here. We're talking about S-E-X in front of the C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N. Sex cauldron? I thought they closed that place down. So how are parents now, who had little or no sexuality education at home themselves, coping with the responsibility of teaching their kids? I called some into the studio to talk about it. I thought I had so much time to work this out. This is Emily Wrights. She's editor of Spin-Off Parents, and she wrote a parenting book called Rants in the Dark, and even she's been blindsided. And then just right before bed, 
Eddie was like, how are babies made? And I was kind of like, well, sometimes if it's a man and a woman and they're together, then they can make a baby. But sometimes it's two women. And they, and so I did. I stuffed it up so bad. And then when I got upstairs, I said to my husband, oh, my gosh, he just asked me and I failed it so bad. And he goes, yeah, he asked me yesterday. And I said, what did you say? And he said, I just said it's magic. <laughs> I don't know what's age appropriate and mm, yeah. what isn't. What and I feel so much pressure, like I don't want to stuff it up. Another person who's keen to not stuff things up is Brian Thomas. He has nine and 11-year-old sons, and he also happens to be my dad. So um, I think when you were children, a lot of your education came from your observations of your environment. You were brought up on a farm, so there was a lot of action, animal action going on around you, and that probably brought, a, brought about some questions and some... And maybe answered a few things, so, mm, so questions perfect. didn't have to be asked. Mm. Now, yeah, I think I think there's a lot more there's a lot more inf- information available, and it's a lot more accessible to mm. to children. And we've got uh, questions that have come from, you know, why is our our friend's dad now identifying as a as a woman and. Mm. Um, and I think through our acceptance of that, that's that's all okay. And quest- some questions just haven't had to be asked because it's okay and it's it's normal. Mm. Mm. Sometimes I think that I can tackle the where did I come from a lot easier than sexuality. Mm. Like I've, I always thought that I would have girls for some reason, and I felt like I would be really good at that. Like I would be be able to tell them like you know mummy had girlfriends and then she met your dad and but with boys I feel less certain my husband's very quiet and introverted like we've talked a lot about how we will approach this and he's been like I don't know we'll just like put condoms out and then just be like be safe (laughs) thumbs up (laughs) and I'm like you've we've got to there's got to be more than that we Mm. weren't really modeled this so yeah. much. No offense, Dad. Like, yeah. the conversations weren't as yeah. open when we were growing up. I feel like I never had that conversation at all. And then I think yeah. um, the conditioning around me was that sex is something you sort of is done to you. And so I kind of want it to be different for the boys, mm. like for them to learn from us and and, in the community rather than from their peers who might be really conditioned in that way. And also their boys, I don't know how to... Yeah, yeah. You know, they're the doing it to the... They're the doing and you're the done to. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. My wife, when she was pregnant, first time around with Ben, because her parents are both only children... She grew up with a younger sister, went to a girls' school, and I remember her saying to me, what if we have a boy? I don't know what to do with boys. Sarah Vidler and her wife would go on to have two of them. But, yeah, I think I've done this thing where I kind of am building up to the discussions around consent and sexuality, around them playing fair in the playground and mm. being nice yeah. and respectful mm. to their peers in the playground and not treating people differently because they're a girl or a boy. Or Yeah, well, I guess that's part of and determining what's age-appropriate with my children who are really young, the consent conversation is not about sexual consent. It's about you don't have to kiss your granddad goodnight if you don't want to. It's really about the kind of general my body, my terms. (laughs) Granddad's laughing because he's been at the other end of that. I've heard that come out of the three-year-old's mouth. (laughs) My body, my my terms. terms. I don't want to give you a kiss goodnight. Awesome. (laughs) 
So I guess with a lot of these things that we're like, how do I even start? Yeah. It might be just about tracing it back to a general wider idea. Concept of consent being quite universal about mm. everything. Yeah. When you look at the way that little kids play at kindy or at school, girls are socialised to be passive and accepting and submissive and be nice and be lovely all the time. Jessie Moss is a teacher and mum to two. You might actually hear her littlest pipe up here and there. We all do it as educators and parents unconsciously still. I catch myself out. A boy will shove past a girl and I'll say, well, maybe he didn't mean to. Mm -hmm. Actually, that doesn't actually matter. What matters is what that boy does about it. You know, being passive and accepting that crap 10 years later, it starts when you're two and it starts when you're three. And that stuff is so subtle. So that's like the the consent is so, Mm -hmm. so important. And it's not just one conversation. I think that I often get stuck in this Mm. idea that, you know, when we talk about consent, when we finally have that conversation, but it is very affectionate. Mm. And right from a very early age, we've been saying, you have to ask if you can Mm. kiss and cuddle somebody. Mm. And it is, I guess, quite heartening to know if that's our default, it just builds and builds until they're teenagers and you start to get into that real gritty stuff. It's the foundation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Having a kid with a special need too, it's totally different again. Like teaching that people have personal space and personal bubbles and maybe that person on the bus doesn't want to have you sitting on their knee because they've never met you before yeah. and yeah. That that's yeah. really reasonable. And, and also teaching about safety at the same time, particularly mm. yeah. for kids with special needs mm. who are so vulnerable and you really have to take quite a different, quite explicit tact, I think, for them. But also, we know for a fact that they're going to go to parties as teenagers and they're going to be drunk girls there who are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I want my boys to be those boys that make sure those girls get home okay mm-hmm. or those boy, other boys who may be considered to be a bit too queer or whatever mm-hmm. don't get beaten up mm-hmm. in the playground. A lot of the things we've talked about seem to come back to the quite random traits that we assign to specific genders and the idea of encouraging empathy in boys and confidence in girls. Yep. And and I wonder if when we're talking about two and three and four-year-olds, if that's kind of all you need to be doing or one of the things you need to be doing is just allowing kids to be kids mm-hmm. and to express these these Absolutely. different Absolutely. parts of and themselves. And just really reframing things. Like kids so desperately want to fit in. In whatever environment they're in, they will take the easiest current, they will go where the water flows, they'll do whatever it is to protect themselves and to fit in and have fun and feel good. And if that means that all the boys are flicking all the girls' skirts and if I don't do that, they're not mm-hmm. going to play with me or mm. whatever it is, we can't blame them for doing it because no. they're doing what they see modelled. Mm. And if we don't unpack and if we don't teach it, we are doing our children a disservice. That's Jessie Moss and we were joined by Emily Wrights, Sarah Vidler and Brian Thomas known to me as Dad here in the Radio New Zealand studios. So I went back to visit Mary from Sex Therapy New Zealand one last time to answer some of the questions raised by our parents and for a progress report. I guess if I'm honest, my first impression was maybe things were getting a little complicated in that conversation and, you know, a a three or four-year-old doesn't need to know all of that stuff that some of the parents were talking about, at least not necessarily in a first conversation to know all of that stuff. For the parents listening, don't panic. This is why Mary is here, to clear up the confusion. 
So how do we answer those very first questions about sex? This is to answer the question that the child asks. So if the child says, how a baby is made, you might say something like, well, the sperm from a male person comes into contact with the ovum from a female person, pierces it, enters it, and then it starts to grow and divide, and the cells that grow and divide become a baby. End of story. Not many four-year-olds or even six-year-olds are going to say, but how does it actually get there? Where does the sperm come from? Where does the ovum come from? Mm. They're not going to ask those sorts of questions until they're a little bit older. Sperm meets egg makes baby. Yeah. So sometime later, months or, or perhaps years, the child's going to, to come back and say, I see babies growing inside mother's stomachs. How, how does that happen in there? And you might go with something like, in the normal course of things, the sperm comes from the male's penis and the ovum is inside the uh, woman's ovaries. And just leave it at that. And then a little bit later, they'll ask more. Go with their questioning mm. at their pace. But if they haven't asked that question, I'd also be asking myself, why not? Do they have no curiosity whatsoever? Or maybe they're talking about it at school and hearing what other children know. Maybe they're starting to be embarrassed about it, but I might create a few opportunities if the question didn't seem to be coming up at the right time. So how do you know when? Well, the first thing is they're going to go to school at five or six years old, aren't they? And they, they're they going to hear a lot of things from other people then. So if that question hasn't come up by the time they go to school, I might be looking at prompting it, depending on the child. We are talking all the way up till, I guess, pre-puberty is what well, up to, can be up till ten yeah. or eleven. Yeah, and and I would like to think that that every child coming up to puberty understands that they are changing from a child to a sexual being, and that is a process that takes um, five years, maybe more. Um, if you want to, to have any degree of comfort talking about this stuff, you've got to be reasonably regularly mm. talking about these things. Otherwise, the child is going to feel that they can't. Okay. So there might be a nice time to say, look, I found this wonderful book about um, uh, human development. It's got these lovely pictures of babies growing in the uterus. And um, I thought we could talk about how that process goes. So when it comes to teaching kids what a healthy relationship is, what can parents do there? Role model a healthy relationship, and if there are things wrong going wrong with your relationship, deal with them. What does that look like specifically? Cooperating with one another, caring about one another, communicating well in pleasant ways, showing them ways to resolve their, their differences that include negotiation and compromise, showing them that it's important to be able to comfortably speak up about what your views are and know that, uh, have the confidence, know that your views are going to be respected, even if they're not agreed with. Mm. And if we do that all the way through and show some affection to our children and to each other, the, 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 the touch, the, the cuddle, the hug, the yeah. kiss on the cheek, those things are really important. And sometimes quite hard to do when you're raising children. Busyness today is our biggest problem. I know this 
being able to role model a loving, caring relationship with some affection will do your children more good than taking them off to scouts, brownies, music, swimming. You know, if you fill all their time up with that sort of thing, they become busy people too. Show them how to care. Show them how to be loving. Show them how to be affectionate. Earlier in the episode, we talked to some people from kind of the generation millennials and above on the street about their own birds and the bees conversations with their parents. And most of them didn't have one. The parents in this discussion seem to think that we've evolved from that or we should be at least and it is not just one talk. That to some parents will sound a little daunting maybe but the aim is to actually make things easier. No, the aim is well, to produce a human being who understands that they are going to be a sexual being and is comfortable with that sexuality. We don't just have this precious little baby that's going to stay a baby. What we're actually expecting when we're pregnant is a new human being who needs to learn how to be a human being. Okay, so the aim is to help your children discover a healthy sexuality, yes, but, also, well put. but also if you do it this way, well, it might seem like a huge daunting task and a lot more difficult than the one awkward conversation. Actually, oh, laying the groundwork easier. makes it easier. Oh, I do. I truly believe it's easier. Yeah, for both, both parties. So there you have it. If we want to raise the next generation of children to be healthier, wholer adults, we just have to follow their lead, answer their questions as best we can, and model affection within our relationships. Easy. That's it for the first episode of Bang. If this has raised any questions or concerns, we will be live in the studio with Mary Hodson in Nights with Brian Crump at 8.30 on Wednesday, August 2nd. So just download the RNZ Vox Pop app and record your question. We'll get through as many as we can on the night. You can also email bang at radionz.co.nz with any other feedback or questions. Thank you so much for listening. Fingers crossed if you're a parent, you're now bursting with confidence to talk to your kids about sex. To subscribe to Bang, go to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get a moment to review and rate us, please do, because that's how podcasts get featured. You can also check out all the other great RNZ series, such as the parenting podcast, Are We There Yet? Hint, no, you're never there yet. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and co-produced by Marcus Stickley, engineered by William Saunders, and the executive producer was Tim Watkin. Next week, we move into the gritty stuff, as Emily put it, the teen years. Now, I'm going to leave you with something Mary said in our very first interview, but this snippet just didn't really fit into the program. It feels like a good place to finish, though. I imagine it's different culture to culture. Of course, it's different culture yes. to culture, our attitudes towards sex. What, what is it that makes New Zealanders either shut down or start laughing? I think it probably stems back to the British. Actually, let's blame the Brits. Um, It it probably stems back to 2,000 years of religious domination of human sexuality, particularly female sexuality. And there were, of course, really good reasons for that because women died in childbirth. Poverty was extensive and, and really great. And so if a girl got pregnant and had a baby, she may not even survive. So that, deaths in childbirth and so on, um, meant there were 
good reasons for controlling sexuality, but not that... being able to prevent pregnancy. You were going to say <laughs> 1950s and the pill. It changed everything, didn't it? Yeah, so it? shouldn't, shouldn't yeah. we have cast off the shackles of shame? The brakes are off, but it's taking us a long time to undo that indoctrination that forms the baseline of, of how we think about sexuality, marriage and relationships. Mm. But you think we're on our way? You think we're I on do, our way? Absolutely. Mm.